Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by Dr. Neil Patel, and we'll be discussing temporal bone trauma. Dr. Patel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. When we talk about presentation of temporal bone uh, trauma, of course, uh, it's kind of easy to predict what the presentation is, but can you get, describe a little bit what we commonly see with folks presenting with uh, temporal bone trauma? Absolutely. It turns out it's quite hard to fracture the temporal bone. And so usually the trauma uh, that a temporal bone fracture will accompany is pretty severe. So we're talking motor vehicle accidents at higher speed, falls from a, a pretty significant height, bike accidents with uh, direct head trauma, um, seizures, assaults, things like that. And a lot of times it has to do with the uh, with trauma to the side of the head or the occiput. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think a good question from a resident standpoint is when you're called for a temporal bone trauma, it's usually maybe the patient's in the trauma bay or, the, or they've just gotten um, up to the floor from the trauma bay. And there's probably a scan that demonstrates a temporal bone trauma, or there certainly is because that's what they're consulting you for. What's your workup for these patients when you know they have a temporal bone trauma? It's often difficult because by the time you've been called, the patient might be intubated, sedated in the ICU, but um, we always wonder what are good questions to ask of the emergency department when you receive the consult. And probably the best one to ask is, before you put that breathing tube in, what was their facial nerve function? And of course, they're not going to be able to give you a House-Brackman scale estimate, but if you can get them to say that, oh, they seem to be grimacing uh, symmetrically or uh, they were responding to pain and, and squint, uh, squeezing both eyes shut or something like that, then you would have a good assessment of facial nerve before you potentially lose the ability to get a good neurologic exam. So that's probably the only question that I ask them right up front. Usually there's so much blood from the ear canal and blood from other places that uh, people aren't going to reliably be able to tell you whether there's uh, CSF otorrhea or rhinorrhea. Um, and then uh, when you actually visit with the patient, uh, usually uh, you're lifting sedation or something like that. But let's take, for example, per- perhaps a less severe injury where the patient just has a temporal bone fracture but uh, is otherwise neurologically intact. Um, uh, you can start by getting an assessment uh, subjectively of uh, whether the patient's experienced any acute changes in hearing, symptoms of vertigo, uh, loud tinnitus, um, uh, things like that. But uh, most of it really comes down to the examination, and uh, I can go into that next. Yeah, sure. So can you tell us you know, what, what we're looking for on exam here? So um, uh, grossly, you want to do a good trauma exam uh, and uh, assess the whole facial skeleton But uh, skipping a lot of that and just focusing on the ear, um, uh, you look at the skin around the ear, and I've only seen a handful of true battle sign uh, previously, but um, that's from uh, bruising uh, from extravasated blood uh, behind the ear, uh, either the mastoid emissary vein or a regional artery or vein. Sometimes people will have a raccoon sign where Uh, They have periorbital ecchymosis associated with uh, skull base fractures. Um, And then after you assess the skin, uh, obviously you're not going to feel any fracture lines, but 
um, looking through the ear canal, you might see a laceration in the ear canal. Um, I really just look with a handheld otoscope. Don't try to uh, aggressively clean anything out or irrigate anything out because there's always the chance that uh, the middle ear is open or the inner ear is open and um, uh, you don't want to introduce any bacteria if there's a CSF leak. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh so oftentimes we'll be consulted after a CT scan has demonstrated this temporal bone fracture. If a normal CT scan has been obtained, would you also obtain a temporal bone CT specifically? That's a great question. Nowadays, most trauma protocols include a submillimeter slice thickness uh, CT scan uh, of the head, and usually that gives good enough views of the temporal bone if you see a perfectly normal appearing temporal bone with uh, no mastoid opacification, no middle ear opacification, of course, no fracture line, um, and perhaps secondarily, no pneumo labyrinth or air within the labyrinth or pneumocephalus in the region of the temporal bone, then you can probably be uh, safe uh, just with that scan and not have to obtain uh, a direct temporal bone CT. Uh, however, if any of those signs are present on the uh, standard uh, head imaging, uh, or if the patient exhibits a worrisome uh, uh, examination finding, uh, then I would obtain a dedicated uh, temporal bone CT. And usually these are somewhere around 0.4 or 0.6 millimeter slice thickness scans. And when you're looking at this scan, uh, can you tell us what the different classifications are or how we describe uh, temporal bone fractures on CT scan? So this has uh, changed seemingly over time, and uh, the nomenclature has changed. Uh, and uh, really the main um, crux of it is, does it involve the otic capsule or not? Uh, and doesn't involve the facial nerve or not. Everything else is sort of secondary. So the old way to describe these were longitudinal, transverse, or mixed. A longitudinal fracture uh, sort of parallels the petrous ridge, and a transverse fracture goes across the frame and magnum usually and um, uh, is sort of perpendicular to that petrous ridge. Um, the transverse fractures are much less common but have a higher chance of otocapsule or facial nerve involvement. And the longitudinal fractures have a lower chance of facial nerve involvement, however, and uh, um, uh, involvement of other critical structures. However, longitudinal fractures are so much more common that we do see facial nerve injury and otocapsule uh, involvement with longitudinal fractures. So usually when I define it, it's, is it otocapsule sparing or otic capsule involving, and uh, does it involve the facial nerve or not? Sure. Uh, so after you have uh, done your physical exam and you have uh, confirmed on your CT scan that you have a temporal bone uh, fracture, what is the role of hearing testing, both maybe subjectively uh, in the patient's room, but also obtaining an audiogram or audiometry? Um, tuning forks are really your friend here. Uh, in the outpatient setting, you almost always have an audiogram to go on, and tuning forks are more confirmatory. Uh, but when you're visiting with this patient in the ICU or in the emergency department, the tuning fork can really tell you a lot of what you need to know. And even in somebody whose mental status is waxing or waning, you can often get a reliable exam. So um, remember your Weber and Renee tests. 
if the Weber lateralizes to the opposite ear, you'd be worried about a sensorineural hearing loss. If it lateralizes to the ipsilateral ear, uh, then usually you're safe and it's conductive hearing loss related to hemotympanum or acicular chain disruption or something like that. It's um, tough to get an audiogram on these patients in the hospital, but if uh, you see a fracture that's concerning for otocapsule involvement, I do try to push to get one once the patient is in a state uh, where they can participate in the audiogram. Mm -hmm. And what is the role for facial nerve testing here? Again, you've described that there is, it's kind of a complex issue because the patient may not be... um, awake and able to participate, you may not be able to examine the facial nerve function. Uh, So how does facial nerve testing fit in here? This is complicated. Um, If a fracture clearly involves uh, a part of the facial nerve, and generally you're not going to see a big disruption in the continuity of the facial nerve, but you'll see a fracture line that goes through one of the segments in the most commonly affected segment is the perigeniculate facial nerve, so through the geniculate ganglion, proximal tympanic segment, or the labyrinthine segment. So if you see a fracture line like that, but the patient is intubated and sedated, you try your best to get uh, an unsedated neurologic exam. Um, uh, This is really your best chance at determining whether they clinically have a facial nerve injury. If a patient does have clinical evidence of acute complete facial nerve paralysis, then three days or so after the injury to allow for Wallerian degeneration, you obtain electrodiagnostic testing. Um, At most institutions, this comes in the flavor of what's called ENOG or electroneuronography or evoked EMG. These are uh, essentially two names for the same thing, and you want to have a good conversation with your neurologist and the testing personnel Uh, to make sure you're on the same page because their terminology is sometimes not the same as ours. The ENOG basically uses the contralateral side as a control and looks at the percent degeneration or the percent difference in the compound action potential uh, generated by the evoked um, EMG response. And if that's greater than 90% uh, degenerated compared to the contralateral side, Uh, then we get into the role for potential surgical decompression, which we would talk about later. Sure. And just to go back real quick, you said that you need to wait 72 hours for Wallerian degeneration. Can you describe why that is, especially in relation to how ENOG is actually tested? Absolutely. Um, So if a fracture goes through the labyrinthine segment or the geniculate ganglion, uh, if you at that very moment, test the integrity of the facial nerve at the stylomastoid foramen, which is the closest uh, part to the proximal facial nerve that you can get to, uh, all the testing will be normal because the facial nerve hasn't um, uh, suffered the injury in that segment yet. Uh, While area degeneration takes some time to move uh, uh, distally along the facial nerve, so from the fracture through the tympanic segment, through the mastoid segment, and then to the stylomastoid foramen, we estimate takes about two or three days. And so ENOG, or evoked EMG, involves um, a uh, supramaximal stimulus delivered at the stylomastoid foramen uh, to evaluate the integrity of the facial nerve. It's anatomically intact, uh, but you have to wait for that functional degeneration to occur. Gotcha. 
So we've talked about kind of presentation and workup, and I'm trying my best to follow the typical format that we use, but it's a little bit tough because this isn't a patient who's presenting um, to your clinic. That's right. So when we start to talk about, you know, quote unquote, pathophysiology, we talked about the different types of fractures. Can you also speak to the, all of the different complications, so to speak, that can be involved with temporal bone fractures? Sure. Um, really, we group these into hearing loss, facial nerve injury, CSF leak, um, uh, and uh, really everything beyond that, lacerations in the ear canal, having bloody otorrhea, uh, things like that are secondary. Um, the hearing loss, like I said before, you can sort out with a tuning fork and, of course, an audiogram. Um, conductive hearing loss is definitely the most common. The most common reason is just a hemotympanum or blood in the middle ear. Uh, but if a laceration goes through the ear canal, often you'll have a uh, tympanic memory perforation. And the most common acicular chain problem uh, from particularly a longitudinal temporal bone fracture is dislocation of the malleus and incus uh, or the joint between those. And that's on a scan. What we look for is the typical ice cream cone shape of the body of the incus and short process being the cone and the ice cream being the head of the malleus. When the ice cream falls off the cone or is separated, um, then we are concerned about discontinuity of that joint. And that's not something you have to intervene upon acutely. Usually these patients have a lot of other things going on, and, uh, but an acicloplasty can be uh, pursued later on. We usually give it some time to see whether uh, the patient does have any conductive hearing loss um, at about the two or three month mark. Sensor neural hearing loss uh, typically only comes from an otic capsule involving fracture, but there's one other phenomenon uh, that can cause uh, a sensor neural hearing loss, and that's called a labyrinthine concussion. Um, and uh, often the fracture won't go through the inner ear, but they will have some vertigo or uh, sensor neural hearing loss. So uh, on imaging, you might see pneumolabyrinth or air within the cochlea or um, uh, vestibule, semicircular canals uh, from the fracture going directly through there. Um, facial nerve injury, we talked about a little bit less common with longitudinal, more common with transverse, but uh, the important thing again is just whether the fracture goes through there or not. Uh, longitudinal are just so much more common uh, that all the facial nerve injuries I've seen have been with uh, longitudinal fractures. And then CSF leaks uh, are relatively common. Um, uh, most people say somewhere between 10 and 30% uh, can have CSF leaks. And uh, oftentimes these will stop by themselves, uh, up to two-thirds in some uh, series. But uh, usually we look to see uh, how high flow the leak is, whether there's any signs of it slowing down while the patient's in the hospital um, and uh, uh, repairing it uh, if indicated. And to, to move in that same vein, that order that you just uh, spoke through, can we now talk about treatment? I guess to start, how do you treat uh, conductive hearing loss? It seems like it's a lower priority on the uh, list there. I agree. And usually you have to wait for the hemotympanum to resolve, um, just like an otitis media with a fusion or a post-operative patient who had ear surgery, you have to wait a good two or three months for that to completely resolve and unmask any underlying acicular uh, problems. If the fracture is really obvious, um, 
I still don't think that early intervention is necessary because um, people can have a, a fairly obvious uh, separation of the malleus and incus, but not actually manifest that much conductive hearing loss in the long run. So um, you might have done the surgery for nothing. Tympanic membrane perforations usually spontaneously heal at about the same rate as uh, a PE tube-related perforation. Um, and uh, if the conductive hearing loss is persistent at that three-month mark, then um, it, uh, we do offer uh, middle ear exploration to patients. And of course, these are uh, aidable also if the patient doesn't want to undergo surgery. Sure. And is there anything you can do about the sensory neural hearing loss if it's an otic capsule involving injury? Um, usually we treat it much like a sudden sensory neural hearing loss uh, with some steroids. But uh, if there's air in the labyrinth and if it's a profound hearing loss, it's really unlikely for that to recover. Uh, there have been cases of some recovery. So if there are no contraindications, I think that steroids are reasonable. Uh, but otherwise, um, we're thinking along the lines of cochlear implantation. And uh, without going too far down that rabbit hole, uh, you do have a, a finite period of time uh, f uh, to get a cochlear implant in an ear that's had uh, a fracture through it and pneumo labyrinth uh, for fear of uh, labyrinthitis and suffocans. Sure. Now, facial nerve paralysis kind of poses a, an issue as well. Can you talk about the approach to treatment when you consider uh, facial nerve decompression in these patients? In general, we use that electrodiagnostic testing. And um, I, if somebody has a House Brackman grade six, complete facial nerve paralysis and a fracture going through there. Um, uh, we usually obtain the testing, like I said, about three days after uh, the injury and your time window for intervention, uh, which comes in the form of uh, decompression of the facial nerve. Your time window is about two weeks. Some people say you can do it up to six weeks, but we really try to do it in that early uh, phase. And um, to be honest, of the patients who have uh, such severe injuries, uh, it's often uh, difficult to get uh, uh, clearance from their medical teams and neurologists and all the others involved to do an intracranial operation to decompress uh, someone's facial nerve. Uh, but um, in the less severe intracranial injuries uh, with temporal bone fractures that involve the facial nerve, uh, two weeks is that time frame. Um, if it's an incomplete paralysis, uh, the likelihood of improvement is uh, very good. There is no role for electrodiagnostic testing in an incomplete paralysis, so, uh, paralysis, so anything better than a house Brackman 6. Um, a delayed onset paralysis where they were normal when they uh, had the injury uh, and uh, a week or so into their hospitalization, they develop some facial nerve weakness. That also is uh, likely to recover spontaneously, and we do recommend uh, corticosteroids for those patients. Um, and the decompression uh, question comes up as far as approach. Uh, if they have hearing, which most of them do, uh, then you decompress it through a middle fossa, uh, plus or minus transmastoid approach to get the labyrinthine segment, geniculate ganglion, 
um, and tympanic segment generally. And um, if they have lost their hearing completely with a uh, uh, otic capsule involving uh, fracture, then uh, it's quite straightforward to decompress all those segments uh, through a translabyrinthine approach. Uh, but uh, this is less common. And uh, going back to the immediate onset where you obtain ENOG, what uh, cutoff are you using to determine if a patient is, um, if you're not able to examine an awake patient, what cutoff do you use for ENOG to know that the facial nerve is totally out? If you get testing at that three-day mark, and uh, it's greater than 90% uh, degeneration compared to the contralateral normal side, uh, then we consider that person a surgical candidate. If um, you get the testing and it's 70% degeneration at three days, you can repeat it later on. And uh, usually at that point in time, you make an assessment of whether that patient's going to be a candidate for it. Um, from an overall medical standpoint with their other traumas um, and repeat the testing if necessary. Uh, But you really only have to walk down that road if you think that the patient's going to be a candidate. Mm -hmm. And you already talked a little bit about CSF leaks. What's your approach to this? And do they require antibiotics? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, There was one study that uh, showed that antibiotics don't um, uh, change any outcomes as far as risk of meningitis. And, you know, we really have a mixed um, view of this. We have patients who undergo uh, uncomplicated acoustic neuroma surgery, develop a delayed CSF leak, and present with meningitis. And we have other patients who have spontaneous temporal bone CSF leaks uh, and have been leaking for five or seven years and never develop meningitis. And we don't completely understand why there's a difference there. But uh, in my opinion, uh, with a traumatic CSF leak, uh, with contamination uh, uh, from um, the injury, uh, ear canal lacerations, et cetera, uh, I do think that antibiotics are warranted. Um, It's a low-risk intervention, low-cost intervention. And if it saves you one case of meningitis, I think that it's worthwhile. Um, sure. We do observe these for a period of time. Uh, usually it's the period of time while the patient's getting medically stabilized. And if they are medically stabilized, extubated, awake, et cetera, et cetera, we then make another assessment. Usually it's at about a week after the injury uh, as to whether they're still leaking. Is it a high flow leak or a low flow leak? Uh, and then intervene accordingly. Sure. Uh, And can you finally just speak to outcomes and prognosis? I know we walked through this somewhat systematically, but more with the facial nerve paralysis side of things. How do you typically counsel patients on this? If somebody goes to a House Brackman 6 immediately and you do a decompression, I think they have a reasonable chance of getting back to, uh, you know, a a three or so. Uh, It's uncommon that we see somebody get back to completely normal facial nerve function. And if they do, it actually makes me wonder whether they had a true, complete, immediate um, uh, facial nerve injury with immediate House Brackman grade 6 paralysis. More often, that was one who was potentially normal when the injury happened. Uh, Some swelling occurred. They went to a 6 and then came back to a 1. Um, but uh, uh, generally, we counsel patients that they'll be able to close their eye, 
uh, have some smile, but uh, probably have some synkinesis. Mm-hmm. Um, there really isn't a, a lot of great uh, um, controlled uh, data, meaning uh, patients who undergo uh, decompression and patients who undergo medical management only for immediate onset uh, uh, complete facial paralysis following a temporal bone fracture uh, because these cases are just so rare. Um, so it's really hard to counsel, uh, but I think that it's a low-risk intervention uh, if somebody does have complete paralysis and they're medically stable to undergo a craniotomy. Well, Dr. Patel, I think we covered a lot here. Um, before I summarize what we talked about, is there anything else you think is worth mentioning that we haven't spoken about? I think that's everything in a nutshell. <laughs> well, here's our summary for today. Uh, temporal bone trauma is caused by significant trauma, such as motor vehicle accidents, bike accidents, and assaults. Initial evaluation uh, should include facial nerve function and gross hearing tests using a tuning fork. There are a couple of descriptions for uh, temporal bone fractures. What's more commonly used these days is otic capsule sparing versus otic capsule uh, involving, and also facial nerve sparing and facial nerve uh, involving. Uh, but there's also the transverse versus longitudinal. Uh, the longitudinal fracture uh, often involves the frame and lacerum and is more likely to be uh, otic capsule sparing. And the transverse is often the frame, frame and magnum is otic capsule involving, or at least more likely to be. There are many complications that exist with temporal bone trauma, including conductive hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss, facial nerve paralysis, CSF leak, and perilymphatic fistula. Uh, CHL or conductive hearing loss often resolves on its own, as does CSF leak. Facial nerve exploration should be considered for immediate onset paralysis, and ENOG is a helpful tool uh, in understanding the severity of facial nerve dysfunction. Dr. Patel, anything else? I think that's everything in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being here. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you. And now I'll go into a few questions before we end our time here. Again, remember that I will ask a question, wait a few seconds for you to think about it or press pause, and then give you the answer. So the first question is, describe what anatomical regions are involved in transverse versus longitudinal temporal bone fractures. A transverse fracture typically involves the foramen magnum, uh, and 50% of these can involve the otic capsule. And the longitudinal fracture usually involves the ear canal and foramen lacerum with a, a lower, lit, lower risk of um, involving the otic capsule. Describe the appropriate management for CSF leaks in these patients. CSF leaks um, should be probably tested to confirm it's a CSF leak with a beta-2 transferrin, but up to 80% of these will spontaneously resolve, and antibiotics can be considered if the leak persists for an extended period of time or if the wound is, uh, is grossly soiled. Under what scenario should facial nerve decompression be considered in this setting, and what are the possible approaches? Facial nerve decompression should be considered for immediate onset paralysis uh, with 
imaging convincing for facial nerve injury. Uh, and the two main approaches include trans lab if hearing is poor and middle cranial fossa if the hearing is intact. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.